This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Thanks for tuning in. We are in Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Hebrews 13, excuse me, Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13. It says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. A fellow named W. Clement Stone said that truth will always be truth, regardless of lack of understanding, disbelief, or ignorance. And the Holy Spirit, I believe, is affirming that here in this passage and telling us we need to guard against disbelief, guard against unbelief. And this is the same thought that he continues with from from last week. Remember in chapter 2, we looked at verse 1, where the writer says, We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. So he's just reinforcing that same message. He's continuing the same thought. He's previously shown that Jesus is the Son of God. He is superior to angels, and he brought with him a superior message of salvation. And so the Holy Spirit says, this is why you need to pay attention to him. If you are, in fact, partakers of a heavenly calling, then you need to consider him. And this is how chapter 3 begins. He says, therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in God's house. And so he sets up the comparison now between Jesus and Moses. But notice he calls him, he calls Jesus an apostle. How is Jesus God's chosen apostle and high priest? In what sense could he be? Well, the word itself, apostle, doesn't necessarily refer to the 12 men that Jesus handpicked to be apostles. We often use it that way, and it's predominantly used that way in the New Testament. But it just means, the word itself just means somebody who sent, or by extension, a messenger. And that's what Jesus was. God, uh, Jesus was sent by God with God's message. And we can read that beginning in Matthew four seventeen, where Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he's an apostle of God. Uh, but at any rate, the writer reminds Christians that they have confessed Jesus as an apostle, as one being sent from God, and also as high priest by obeying his gospel. And he's saying this is not a confession to be taken lightly. You have shared in this heavenly calling. Now you need to consider Jesus and remind yourself of his role and your obligation to him because of what he's done for you. We can't afford to to recant or to waffle on this. Look at verse 3. He has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. And so Moses served God's house, as the Hebrew writer says there in verses 1 and 2. Um, he served God's people. That's what that means. God's house is God's people or his his family, the Hebrews, the Israelites that he chose, Numbers 12, 7. So Jesus, however, is the builder of that family and of this new family that is worthy of more honor. He is worthy of more honor as, as the founder of of the church as the captain of the faith as the hebrew writer will start to uh, allude to him or call him different things like that uh, pioneer captain 
author, founder. There's not really a single word in English that uh, captures the, the the full context of the word that he uses. Remember, we uh, we talked about that last week. The Archie Ghost, the one who uh, kind of blazes the trail from the ship. He he he's the first to take the line and brave the, the rocks from the ship to the shore, and then he establishes the way for for everybody else. Uh, so that that's conjures up pictures of heroism and leadership and sacrifice and honor, and and Christ is all of these things. And the Hebrew writer is saying he's he's all of that. And similar to the way that Moses was, but so much more. He he built the family. Without him, there would be no house. There would be no family. And that's what the Hebrew writer is saying. Every house is, verse 4, every house is built by somebody, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later. But Christ, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house Remember, house is family. We are his family if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And so he's saying we Christians are the house of God. The church is God's house. First Timothy 3, 15, the household of God, the pillar and support of the truth. And we should take careful notice of that phrase that immediately follows, whose house we are. Notice the condition, if, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end, in verse 6. So there's a condition placed upon us if we desire to be brought into God's house and remain there. And that goes against many religious scruples that people have in the world today. Many religious people say, no, once you're a member of the house, you're there forever, and nothing you can do is ever going to change that. I want you to read that verse again carefully. If that's what you believe... There's going to be many passage, passages here in the book of Hebrews that challenge that belief. And here's one of them in verse 6. And not just in Hebrews, but in all of Scripture. But we're focusing on Hebrews. There's a condition here. So much of the religious world claiming loyalty to Christ would object, saying, No, 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 there's nothing we can do. It is the finished work of Jesus that saves us. And that, in a sense, is absolutely right. There is nothing that you or I could do to ever avail ourselves of a, of a way to get rid of our sin. Without his sacrifice, we would have no hope whatsoever. Romans 5 says we were helpless, we were enemies of God, and yet God demonstrated his own love in sending his son to be a sacrifice for our sins. It is the sacrificial death of Christ and his resurrection revealed in the gospel which has the power to save men, period. However, that does not mean that men have no responsibility to respond to Jesus. You see, it's it's a difference between means and conditions, and some people confuse those things. They'll say, Jesus is is the means of sacrifice. What they're arguing when they say the, the, it's the finished work of Jesus that saves us, they're saying it's the sacrifice of Jesus. That's God's means of saving us, and that's 100% true. But then to say that that means there are no conditions to access the means that God gave is unbiblical, right? And so we kind of argue past each other because one person is emphasizing the means, whereas I would emphasize conditions in a lot of cases because Scripture does as it does here in Hebrews 3 and verse 6. There's no argument that there is any other means besides Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, absolutely 100%. He's the only way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. John fourteen six. 
but he himself has imposed conditions. Isn't that what you hear in John 14, 21? If anyone loves me, he will keep my commands, and I will love him and my Father will love him. We will come to him and disclose ourselves to him. There's conditions. So it's not just here. We have a responsibility. I'm jumping ahead a little bit to Hebrews chapter 5, but in verse 9, it comes up again. It says, Jesus is the one who is made perfect. And so he, Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to who? To all who obey him. So again, lest there's any confusion about obedience as the condition to salvation, consider one more text, Romans 6, verses 1 through 18. I'm not going to read the whole thing here, but this is what... uh, uh, Paul says in Romans 6, uh, verses 17 and 18, rather, not 1 through 18. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Being then made free from sin, you became servants of righteousness. So just because God has made obedience a condition of salvation doesn't mean salvation ceases to be a gift. Paul acknowledges the Christians in Rome had obedience from the heart to the gospel, which in turn made them free from sin and servants of righteousness. But it's still a gift. And any doctrine which makes grace and obedience enemies is the product of human imagination. Nothing more. The Holy Spirit himself states the conditional nature of salvation. And then he offers an example from history for us to consider. He says, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me. That's the very next verses in Hebrews 3, verses 8 and 9. And so he's drawing our attention now. He's, he's laid out this condition and he's saying, see, it's just like this. Remember. Remember the unfaithfulness of God's chosen people, right? Because it's he's anticipating, wait a minute. People are going to say, wait a minute. I, I'm one of the family of God. I can't ever not be one of the family of God once I've been brought into the, to the fold. And, and he's saying, no, that was, that's never been the case. And he wants us to avoid making the same mistake as God's ancient people. He doesn't want us to suffer the same consequences. Continue reading in verses 10 and 11. Their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger that they shall never enter my rest. In other words, again, learn from their example. Don't suffer the wrath of God and miss heaven, God's rest, because you were too selfish and afraid to remain faithful. That's what unfolds in the Old Testament time and time again. And so this is exactly where the Hebrew writer is taking his original audience. It's not where he's taking us, but notice the application that he makes. He says, see to it then, Hebrews 3.12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of us, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. And so we arrive right where, where they are. The warning that he gave to them is just as relevant to us as it was then and there's no room for once saved always saved there's no room for that doctrine in Hebrews 3.12 or anywhere in scripture because he's addressing 
Who's he talking to? He says, brethren in Christ, brothers and sisters. He says, you can turn away from the living God. And you will turn away if you don't do something about it, if you aren't working to remain faithful, if you aren't trying to stay faithful, holding fast your confidence as the expression in verse 6. So what are we to do in light of that possibility? First of all, we have to be ready and willing to first admit the possibility that we could. Right well, On the night that Jesus was betrayed and he told his disciples it was going to be one of them who did it, they were all went around the room asking, is it I, Lord? Right, So they were willing to acknowledge the possibility that they had the capacity to do that, to, to betray him. And we have to be willing to acknowledge the same. The writer says in verse 13, Encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so we have this responsibility to one another, to help each other on this road, to build up one another, to care for one another, encourage one another in the faith, right? just like a, a sports team. That's a human illustration, I know, but you know we get it in that context. Where we understand it right when we're cheering on our favorite team, our favorite athlete, and we're participating in that way and we're involved even though we're not on the field or the court or whatever the case may be. We're, we're encouraging them, and that's what we're to do for one another. So how seriously do we take that responsibility? The writer repeats his previous point that that we are only part of the family of God. If, again, verse 16, we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. And so he repeats the condition. So if we are failing in this regard, then we are no longer partakers of Christ. We are no longer his family. We're failing him and we're failing our brethren. And we're no different than those ancient people who provoked God with their cowardice and laziness and entitlement. And so we see in verse 15, the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. And so what does he mean? Does he mean a literal voice from heaven, if you hear that voice? No, remember the writer started this letter by saying God has already spoken in Hebrews 1 and 2. And you'll find other New Testament writers saying the same thing. And so we're under obligation to pay much closer attention to what we have heard, past tense, what's already out there, what God has already said, so that we will not drift away from that. That's chapter 2 and verse 1. So God's voice is heard how, where, through the Scripture, the message that has already been confirmed, Hebrews 2, 4, and only through Scripture in our time, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It has been provided to show us everything that God would have us be and do, to provide with us everything that we need to be righteous before Him, perfectly equipped, lacking in nothing. Your Bible may use all the, or any of those phrases in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God will be complete equipped for every good work. And the writer is simply restating that point, but in a different way here in chapter 3. Namely, he's, he's warning us from about turning away from that, turning away from God by hardening our hearts against him and his message. And so note the connection between rejecting God's word and rejecting God's son, rejecting God himself, and the hardening of our hearts. All of those things are interrelated. 
Biblically, hardening one's heart means to be unreceptive and even hostile to God's word. And remember, he is talking to Christians. He's talking to Christians. This is what the prophet Zechariah said. It says, They refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears from hearing. They made their hearts like flint so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. That's the peril of unbelief. And each and every one of us is responsible. Because that possibility, that reality there is is present for each of us. So long as we're here. And so we have to be resolved, as the Hebrew writer is saying, we have to be resolved to serve Christ, our Savior, on His terms as He has decreed, not harden our hearts against Him, not ignore His voice, not pay attention and drift away from what we have heard. That's our responsibility. So are we going to be among those who are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? We can't allow ourselves to believe The devil's doctrine of once saved, always saved. He's been telling people that lie from the beginning. When he told Adam and Eve, you surely will not die in Genesis 3, 4. That is the false doctrine of once saved, always saved. They were in perfect union with God. And their sins separated them from him. And that's still true. The fact is, even God's people can forget his grace and forsake his word. yourself be one of them. Stand fast and help your brethren to do the same. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jason Garcia, and this has been Faithful Sayings.